0: Welcome into a brand new episode of 300 Yards to Unknown. I'm Rick Gaiman coming to you from Blue Wire Studios at Win Las Vegas, and there's a rant incoming. That's right, I would normally describe this as state of the tour, but maybe it should be state of the game, considering we have now multiple tours uh, for us to consider, a lot to talk about. We'll dive into that, but I do want to start uh, with my experience out in Boston, we're back from Brookline. The U.S. Open, the first major championship that I covered as credentialed media, feels different, felt different. Obviously, the timing of uh, the event made it feel special, right? I we, we were just chatting before we went hot here that this thing that's happening in the world of golf right now doesn't really happen. Golf is not a sport filled with drama. Golf is... Uh, like many other sports organizations that have rarely had outside threats, or if they have had outside threats, they haven't really been threats at all. Uh, imagine if the USFL had unlimited amounts of money and they were able to start picking off Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes and all these superstars. That's what's going on. It's it's essentially unheard of. So. For the fact that we had the first Live Golf event in London the week immediately before the U.S. Open, and then those golfers were going to come back and play at the country club, it just created a sense that this one was different. And then when you actually played out that major championship and it came down to Rory McIlroy and Will Zalatoris and Matt Fitzpatrick and Colin Morikawa and uh, John Rahm and Hideki Matsuyama and all these great names. It, it felt bigger. Scotty Scheffler didn't even mention Scotty Scheffler finished one shot out uh, of a playoff. It, it just felt different and to be there for it. I, I hope to kind of relay some of that, that vibe and everything that was, that was going on. But I want to start with the golf course because The country club was unbelievable. And as you can imagine for a golf course, that's over a hundred years old. It's, it's fairly claustrophobic, right? the, lack of golf carts, uh, or or excuse me, uh, cart paths that are out there, right? This course isn't, you don't drive a golf cart on this golf course, you walk it. And with that, there are a bunch of greens that are right next to tee boxes. There are holes that share fairways. It is just a tight, claustrophobic feel. And what that creates is a situation where all the fans are kind of lumped up in one spot, right? So I believe they limited the attendance, like 26,000 fans. And when you realize that the most popular golfers were also the golfers who were most in the mix, you got a situation where all 26,000 fans were essentially in one spot. So it had a lot of juice. The vibe was very, very strong. No one mentioned a thing to the live guys, right? That was going to be one of the big storylines coming in. I don't think I heard a negative word out of the Boston faithful to any of those guys reiterating the fact that what happens on golf Twitter does not necessarily translate to what happens on the golf course uh phil was signing autographs and giving thumbs up and doing all the fun stuff like he normally would and very little distraction along the way the conversation of the week started with phil right phil mickelson did a press conference on on monday morning that kind of set the tone for tuesday and wednesday and live being the conversation that not just the media was having guys like that's that's the one thing that i think I want to point out, yes, the media is covering a major story in sport. The media is covering a major story with geopolitical consequences. Uh, However, the players are talking about it, too. It's all the players are talking about. It's all the agents are talking about. It's all the managers are talking about. It's all the caddies are talking about. It's all anyone is talking about. So, Yeah, when you hear the echo chamber of the media constantly asking these guys about Live Golf, they're talking about it too. So don't let that uh, fool you at any point. Once we got to Thursday, it felt like the course took over a little bit, right? The country club playing at only 7,200 yards shows that you don't have to go to Aaron Hill's every U S open. You don't have to stretch this thing out to 8,000 yards. You can go to a golf course that has small challenging greens. You can grow up the rough and you can make it firm and fast and you can penalize these guys for hitting bad shots and you can penalize them. Even when they do hit some good shots, it wasn't always fair out there in Brookline and the course kind of took over. Now the USGA for some reason has done this thing where they've already announced seemingly the next 30 years of venues. Uh, so I don't know when the opportunity is that we're going to be able to get back to the country club. But a course that has given us a great major championship, a course that has so much built-in history uh, uh, with with the game and with the USGA, like it should be in the Rota. It should be back there. The infrastructure around Boston and around Brookline... Not necessarily great. I know there were shuttles coming in from every corner, uh, the media hotels which we didn't stay at, but they were I think they were downtown. It wasn't particularly easy to get in and out of. It was a disaster uh, with with shutting roads down actually in Brookline it was it was kind of a mess, but once you got on the golf course, it it seemed to be much better and it played to a unbelievable championship, which kind of goes back to my the hottest golf take that I think I have, which is a lot of these events should be played without fans right it would make it easier to go to courses that we couldn't go to not have to worry about infrastructure at a lot of these places and you could just straight up play championship golf at championship caliber golf courses i know there's a lot of other things that go along with not having fans but i do think it would be interesting being there as uh credentialed media it feels a little bit different so i got a lot of questions about this so i'll just pull back pull back the curtain a little bit here so the 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 media center is like a pretty sweet place Right. So you've got the big screens up with um, whether it's featured coverage, which whether it's the NBC coverage, whether it's the world feed, you've got like all the shots available and then two massive scoreboards that are updating in real time. Right. Like you'd see a score update on a scoreboard and then, you know, NBC or whatever would get to it seven minutes later or something like that. But you're getting all of that in real time. They're feeding you all day long. It's very it's very hard not to put on like 10 pounds in a week when they're feeding you breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, ice cream. Uh, unlimited, uh, like cold brew on tap, whatever you want, it's there. It's it's pretty impressive stuff. And then, the the flash media uh center is right outside. So basically, what happens and the way that you see this play out on TV is a golfer finishes around his round, an announcement comes over the loudspeaker, and they say, "Hey, Rory McIlroy will be in the flash." interview zone in 10 minutes and then everybody goes out there they ask them the questions they come back in that's the way media works uh player hospitality is a little bit different if you're if you have access to player hospitality that's where family friends caddies players managers agents they go a little bit swankier a little bit nicer you see the players hanging out in there after the rounds a little bit of uh higher grade stuff over there with with alcohol and food and all that so um they put on a really really good show but i think the the biggest takeaway that I had was when you're in person, there are natural ebbs and flows that go through a golf tournament that you don't necessarily see on television, whether that doesn't fall into the storytelling aspect of it, or it doesn't fall into the guys that they're showing you on television, but there is a natural like punch and counter punch, right? It's rare, especially at a major championship where golfers are constantly going in one direction. Um, Scotty Scheffler, I think it was on, Saturday, maybe it was Friday, somebody can find out for me, where he you know, goes from one under par to six under par in a blink of an eye and then back from six under to one under in another blink of an eye. Like There are just ebbs and flows to these golf tournaments that you see building more in person when you have access to the scoreboards, when you have access to watching these players go through their rounds as opposed to just seeing the best shots that come onto the coverage. Or the, you only really see bad shots from guys who are in the mix, right? If you're not in the mix and you hit a bad shot, you don't ever see it on television. Being there in person allows you to take that in and understand that this is not linear trajectory up and to the right or down and to the left. There's a lot of little ebbs and flows along the way. Um, for me personally, it's, it's crazy, right? I want to be at every major. I want to be at every event. I want to be out there. So the goal is... With with CBS and the First Cut guys, we did live pods for the first time, which is crazy. We did it in person the first time we ever all got together in the same spot. Our goal would be to do that like six times a year. Maybe the major championships outside of the Open Championship, because I can't imagine CBS is going to be sending five or six of us to uh, to England or to the UK every single year. If they want to, that'd be great. But I think doing it at... Three major championships, maybe you throw in Riviera, maybe you throw in the Memorial, the players, like these big time events would be awesome. And I think it provided a a completely different level of insight that I hope came through on camera, on audio, however you were following along with everything. So an unbelievable experience. The conversation uh, lingered on Matt Fitzpatrick for a bit. And now we are kind of back into live golf conversation, which I hate to do, but I also get it, right? To go back to the sheer rarity of something like this happening in sport, uh, especially golf, especially a polarizing situation in which a uh, a government gets involved in funding it. It's just a very rare occurrence. So we're back to talking with Liv Golf. So we've got Abraham answer who announced before the, U or I guess withdrew before the U.S. Open, but announced that he's going to live golf Brooks Kepka on his way. Patrick Reed on his way. The second event in Portland will run opposite of the John Deere Classic. I don't know if that was strategic or not. I don't know if it was strategic for live golf to go up against what is likely to be the weakest PGA Tour field of the season. It's kind of smart, right? Because I think you're going to have a situation where, you know, when they went up against the RBC Canadian, uh, is that what they went up against? Yeah, they had to have, right? So that was a situation where you've got Rory in the mix. You're back in Canada for the first time. It's such It was such like a different feel of an event. No offense to the John Deere Classic, but they're not going to get a very good field, and they're going to have to battle against the eyeballs that are live golf for at least the first 54 holes. Whether it was strategic or not, very, very interesting. Um, Brooks Kepka will look like a fool and will laugh all the way to the bank. Both of those things seem to be true. The interviews that he gave at the US Open were so over the top and outrageous that it was almost guaranteed that he was going to live golf. Almost insulted that he was even being asked whether or not he would be making uh, the defection over to live golf, acting like this black cloud was being put over the US Open just by being asked these questions. Well, Brooks, listen, it's the biggest story in, in sports, especially in our sport your brother has already played in it and you've already told us you don't like regular PGA tour events anyway, we're going to have to ask you about this. You're going to, why, why would you think you wouldn't be asked about it? So it was over the top response kind of had everybody sold that he was eventually going. And then a couple of days later we do indeed get the actual news. I don't think he cares, right? I don't know what, how much money he got. I'm sure it was a ton of money, but Probably doesn't care like look that he's going to look like a fool, uh, but he will because that was probably one of the worst kind of responses that we've had, and then and then flips. Bryson did it as well five uh, just five days later. So what I learned not only what not only what I'm learning from this round of announcements, but also from what you hear in the media center and all that stuff is that no one is reliable. Everything is unreliable. I've been told things straight to my face from guys that I trust that don't end up being correct or the opposite, right? I mean, it's just like, no one is reliable. You could release a statement saying I'm with the PGA tour and five days later, you could leave. You could say, why would you even ask me these questions? And then three days later, be on your way. There is just nothing is safe and nothing is reliable. And I actually think there are a lot of guys who don't know what they're doing. One of the bigger takeaways that I noticed from being at, at Brookline is these guys are talking to one another. And they are constantly getting new information and being asked X, Y, and Z or being told A, B, and C. It's just like it's constantly changing and nothing is reliable in this moment. I think the real, uh, I guess the good part for the PGA Tour is that there haven't been a lot of real surprises yet. The guys that have gone are all the usual suspects or guys that you could argue, okay, probably at the end of his career, probably not all that competitive again, maybe injury concerns, whatever it it might be. Taylor Gooch is really the only huge surprise. A younger guy who's already won on tour, who probably has a lot of PGA Tour events ahead of him, I guess it's just securing the bag. For him, that's really the only one that doesn't make a ton of sense, and he's not a huge popular name, so it probably doesn't matter in the overall scheme of things. But there are, like, there are guys who are going to go right that are going to the the first surprise guy. I think will create a massive stir and a massive issue, whether that is Can'tley, whether it is Xander, whether it is you know Morikawa. Denied it a couple of days ago. He says he's with the PGA Tour. Again, who's reliable and who's not? Um, Whether it would be like a Hideki or a Joaquin Neiman, like, would these guys be like, holy crap, we're screwed here? What if John Rahm went, right? Are we screwed here, right? The PGA Tour kind of in a really awkward position. So I think the likely scenarios are um, you're going to get some more announcements. As far as I'm aware, you're going to get guys that. Uh, Monday Monday and Tuesday of John Deere are going to go and play in Portland. Um, I also believe you are going to get guys after the Open Championship, and I think you're going to get guys after the Tour Championship. Because think about it, and I don't want to throw someone like Patrick Cantlay under the bus, but if you're Patrick Cantlay and you did want to go to live, wouldn't it be smart to play the Open Championship without kind of a cloud over you and people bothering you about it and wouldn't it be smart to go and play in the tour championship and try to get 10 to 18 million in a bonus there and then go collect your big paycheck from Liv, right? Like why would you why would you go now and miss Portland? Right. So I, I think there are going to be natural spots on the schedule where more of these guys end up going. There are a few things that could stop this. Um Maybe one of them is major championships, but the other is the official world golf rankings. So when you start looking at how OWGR points are awarded, and I believe that Liv needs an OWGR resolution soon, and they might not get one soon, right? Like if you, they've already submitted an application for OWGR points, it might be a year before that application gets resolved one way or another. They might never get, approved by the board. The, you know who's on the board? The board is seven entities. It's like Jay Monahan from the PGA Tour. It's the four majors. It's the DP World Tour. It's like, I don't know, are these guys super incentivized to start handing out OWGR points to to live golf? And if they don't start handing out OWGR points, it's going to be difficult for players to play their way into majors. So for example, and Brooks might not be a great example of this because he's got exemptions from... You know, winning multiple U.S. Opens and m- multiple PGA Championships, but just in general, the way OWGR points work: um, for every event that you play, you get uh, an adjusted points number, and then they divide uh, uh, your your two year rolling total over how many events that you've played. So that is called your divisor. So the most you can have is fifty two. That's the highest divisor that you can get, so that you can't game the system by playing. 60 times a year around the world, I guess that would make sense, 52 times a year and have 100 events and you can't just keep piling it up. So your max divisor is 52 and then your min divisor is 40. So if you play 10 events, you're still being divided by 40, which brings down your average OWGR points and the average is how they rank you. That's the whole thing. That's, that's the money. So Brooks Kepka, currently 19th in the OWGR. If he does not earn any more OWGR points until the U.S. Open of next year, he will essentially only have 78 OWGR points. And if we use 40 as his minimum divisor, it's a 1.9 average, which means he would drop basically from 19th to 66th if he does not earn another OWGR point between now and next year. And you're probably saying, Rick, obviously he's going to earn OWGR points in the next year. Is it that obvious? because here's here are his, here are the chances we know he has the open championship the masters maybe and maybe the PGA championship next year three events he maybe has three events to earn OWGR points between now and next year's US open and we know he's going to be able to play the Open Championship. We don't know about his status for the, for the, the Masters. And assuming he's in on qualification of past champion status at the PGA, he's in there. So maybe three, three cracks at it. If he goes until next year's Open Championship without earning any more points, which, again, kind of possible, because it might only have four events in which he earns OWGR points on, he would drop to 350th in the official World, go- world Golf Rankings. More or less. Which would make him not qualified for any event if you're 350th on tour. So you're going to have a situation where these guys and their OWGR rankings will drop like a rock if they do not get access to OWGR points. They could go play Asian tour events. They're going to probably try to play DP World Tour events. But now is that a situation where Brooks Kepka, who is going to play eight live golf events, wants to go grind eight more DP World Tour events, eight more Asian Tour events, that he's probably going to have to win because he's not going to get like a huge... He's not going to he's not going to earn a lot of points with the strength of field that those events are going to have. So if you play poorly, or you don't want to kind of game the system for OWGR points, we are not that far away from Brooks Kepka being ranked outside like the top 200 in the world. It's not that unreasonable. And that's why I think you're going to see the Saudis try to buy the DP World Tour, right? That, that's that's that been the rumor. I said the PGA Tour a month ago should have bought the DP World Tour as added protection. The DP World Tour, which was essentially on the verge of extinction in June of 2020, is now likely to be the centerpiece of a bidding war between the PGA Tour and live golf crazy world crazy world and i know who wins a bidding war unless the dp world tour just wants to say hey you know we will take the money from the pga tour then the pga tour would have two seats on the owgr board uh they would ensure that golfers do not earn points in dp world tour events and now it gives them less opportunities to earn owgr points if you are major championships there, your entire incentive is to do nothing. The strategic incentive is do nothing. This plays itself out. If you're Augusta National, we are, uh, what is that, 10 months away from the next Masters? 10 months. The, whole, the OWGRs are rolling two-year. If this drops off with 10 months of results for these guys, a lot of them, they're not going to be in any way. So you don't have to make any swift movements here. You just wait. And if you wait, this gets resolved itself. So the PGA Tour has a lot more defending that it needs to do. Um, We got a little bit of a look under the hood of how Live Golf negotiates. Uh, Pearson Cootie, who is one of the top-ranked amateurs, although he just turned pro, uh, coming out of the University of Texas, uh, did a story here with Golf.com about the offer that he received from Live Golf. So this is a kid who is, what? I, I don't I even, okay, he's 22. He, via the PGA Tour U program, has full status on the Corn Ferry Tour, turned down a, quote, multi-million dollar offer from Live Golf, which would have been a two-year commitment, and then he would have been able to play on, in all of these events that have $4 million purses. And he turned it down, and the quote that he said that I think was most telling is, quote, I might be sitting on my couch with millions in my bank account watching my friends play on the PGA Tour, and that would be devastating, end quote. He would also go on to say, and let me find this other quote here, about, here we go. So it says, uh, Pearson said he took comfort from those who are his close friends, and North Texas role models like Will Zalatoris, Scottie Sheffield, and Jordan Spieth, all of them who have remained committed to the PGA Tour. He said, quote, I know all of those guys, and if they believe in the PGA Tour and believe what it stands for and what they're doing, then I think I made the right decision. So good news for the PGA Tour. You still have the cachet of history. You still have the cachet of all these kids wanting to eventually get to the PGA Tour and compete against the best. We saw the PGA Tour's response by adding money to purses, which we'll talk about in a second. But I actually don't think the PGA Tour needs to get in a, an arms rate. Like you're never gonna outraise or outspend the Saudis. You're, it's not gonna happen. But can you get close? Can you do a couple things that that make it 60%? Because if you got 60%, and you've got all the history, you've got all the all the cachet, you're going to the best golf courses, you have the best players, you have that. I think it's interesting. And, that, and also, it goes to show the more you're able to retain of the role models, Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, Scotty Scheffler, Will zalatoris you can retain others. It's kind of a followers organization. So the PGA Tour um, does respond by starting next year, Only the top 70 on the PGA Tour are going to be fully exempt. That includes invitationals. The first playoff event will go from 70, then down to 50, then down to 30 for the Tour Championship. They're adding three international no-cut limited field events in which the top 50 from the FedEx Cup and top performers from the fall are invited, so guaranteed funds there. They increased eight different events with pretty significant purses, Tournament of Champions doubles. Genesis almost doubles, up to 20 million. API 20. Match play, Memorial, FedEx, St. Jude, BMW Championship, all up to 20 million. Players Championship, $25 million. So that's the close thing, right? If you're the PGA Tour and you have a purse that's $20 million and the Live Golf Association has $25 million purses, you're close. You still haven't done the guaranteed payouts, but you got to assume they're slowing down from live golf. Eventually there's just no incentive for them to always be paying a hundred million dollars to golfer number 30, 50, 70 or whatever. It's just, there's no incentive to do that. So we're getting close here from the PGA tour and they're going back to, they're going back to the season, just oh, going over one year. There's not going to be like that wraparound season anymore, which is fine by me. Um, Honestly, it's a little bit better than I thought they could do. Or it's it's probably as good as I thought as as I thought they could do. Jay Monahan has very limited resources and ability to do anything with a pen stroke, right? This is like trying to turn a battleship. There are so many uh, agreements and partnerships and scheduling of events that goes that go out years and years and years that it was going to be difficult to do anything massive quickly. I want the F1 model I want 72 golfers in 12 teams of six that are competing both individually and as teams for 28 events a year. And 28 of, or 24 events, plus four majors, and 24 events in which the purses are $30 million apiece. So, like, something outrageous. Like, that's what I want. I want relegation. That's what I want. We were never going to get that overnight. Have we gotten closer? Maybe. Um, I think that, you know, the pros of this... More money, less tour cards available. No offense to, I don't even want to name anybody, John Houston, who played a PGA Tour event a couple of weeks ago, shouldn't be in these fields. The PGA Tour, if you think about it, it's really hard to lose your card. And why is it so hard to lose your card? Because it's a member-run organization. Why won't Congress put term limits or age limits on themselves? Uh, cause they make the rules. Why would, why would the tour players vote and approve less tour cards? It's like when you move out of an apartment, I had this happen once I moved out of an apartment. They do the, the check to see if you get your security deposit back. They bring in the carpet company to tell you if the carpet needs to be replaced. Uh, spoiler alert. It does. It always does. Why would they, why would they say no to that? That's what we have here. So it's hard to get your tour players to agree to limiting the number of cards. But if you have a situation where Will Zalatoris, who has just been described as part of the reason that Pearson Cootie stays with the PGA tour, if you have a situation where Will Zalatoris cannot get his tour card, and if he had uh, and earned as many points as guys that were like in the top 30 of the tour championship, and that guy can't get into your league, huge problem. Huge problem. So there are still—I I mean, imagine any other sport in which you had, um, God, like Giannis stuck in the G League, and the NBA threw up their hands and said, "Well, nothing we can do until next year. He's going to have to play out in the G League, and then he'll be able to come in. He'll be able to come in next year." Insanity, insanity. So we've got to get into a situation where there's more turnover, there's more competition, and all that fun stuff. Um, The cons of this, it doesn't really create a more exciting product, right? Uh, The full benefits of this aren't really realized until 2024. It's more golf, actually, for some of the top players. If you add three new events and they're still kind of playing the same schedule, and it doesn't address the rest of the ecosystem. Jay Monahan is not going to be able to please everybody, right? If he adds a bunch of high-profile events, high-dollar events for the top players in the world, the corn fairy guys are like, what? Or the guys that are outside the top 70 are like, really? What, what about us? What about us in the eco ecosystem? If you cater to the entire ecosystem and to golfers, 80 through one twenty five, the top 20 guys who do all the legwork, do all the marketing, do everything for you are like, Hey, what about me? Shouldn't I be guaranteed more? It's a good question. It's a good question. Um, I think that there is a situation in which you're going to get guaranteed payouts for having a tour card, even if it was a million dollars, right? Like 70 golfers, a million dollars. So now I've got all of my, that covers my expenses, my travel, gives me a little bit, like I've got a little bit of security. Now we go play for purses. I think that's in the future. I think it should be in the future. Why shouldn't it be? Right in in any other sport is it truly a meritocracy? And also, whether you like it or not, a million dollars is not enough to be like, oh, this is no longer a meritocracy. Not when you're playing for multiples of that in every single event and when over you know twenty four, twenty eight, forty eight events. So there is a situation where I think that's coming, and I think it should be coming. Maybe you slot it like draft purposes, right? Like a tour card. Uh, if you're the number one golfer in the FedEx cup standings the year before, you already got your $18 million check, but maybe you should just get 5 million guaranteed. And then maybe number two should get four and a half and then 4 million down to and Then guy 70 gets a million. I don't know. Somebody will be able to figure it out, but shouldn't they get guaranteed money? Shouldn't they kind of be obligated to stay here on tour incentivized to stay here on tour incentivized to play events? Yeah, I think they should be. Uh, big question on where the money's coming from. That's always that's always fun. Where's the money coming from for all these purse increases? As if Jay Monahan walked down to the safe in the basement and pulled out $60 million in cash. That didn't happen. It's basically PGA Tour reserves, and it's essentially them saying, we think we can cover this, right? They're going to sell sponsorships to three new international series events. You're darn right. They're going to take on an official water bottle sponsor of the PGA Tour. They already have an official PDF reader app of the tour. It's Acrobat, in case you were wondering. Like, there's going to be a billion of those because they've got to pay for this. So it's not like they're uh, snapping their fingers and coming up with money. There's going to have to be a business plan in, uh, in place here. The other thing that I don't think they addressed uh, is the fans. Quite honestly. And I think the fans are like taking sides. Right? The fans are deciding am I a PGA guy or am I a live guy? Also, I don't know why it's so polarizing. Actually, I guess I do know why it's so polarizing. It's just like, um, I mean like I I'm gonna pick a team. Everything's a team game now. Politics, sports, everything's a team. You just pick a team, and then no matter what. You can't be critical of your team and you have to support your team, so it ends up becoming incredibly polarizing. I mean I also just saw again t- again today, and I continue to see this argument, a, a very prominent comment on Instagram from somebody's like, "Oh, well, the United States does uh, a bunch of trade with the Saudis uh, every year. Isn't there a double standard? Uh, no, because the US government doesn't run the PGA tour." What are we doing, guys? I would have a problem if the U.S. government also used my tax money to fund a golf league or any sports organization. I would have a problem with that. PGA Tour is a private organization; it's a private business. No, there is no there is no double standard when uh, two governments do business with one another, and you have a private business located in one of those countries. There is no there is no conf- no there is no double standard. So. You get more fans, fans draw on sponsors. Sponsors bring in money, money bring in golfers, money brings in security. It's a very easy thing to uh, kind of figure out. I opened this up to Twitter comments and questions because I just didn't necessarily know what direction to continue to go in. This is a situation that is changing literally daily, literally almost hourly. Now, Live Golf on Friday, uh, Friday the 24th, had a full back page ad on the New York Times promoting Live Golf, right? Normalizing it, trying to say, "Hey, we're part of this conversation now." The media blitz has begun, so it's changing constantly. I wanted to kind of get a feel for what some of the questions and concerns were, so I'm just going to try to roll through, um, roll through some of these and see if I can do a good job of answering them to the best of my ability. What's your approach to gambling on Live? What are your thoughts on the huge gap between money and infrastructure in this startup league? Mind blowing aspect. Yes, gambling on Live uh, TBD. I think that there's going to be a, like I, what books are going to offer this, right? I think DraftKings might have offered the 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 London event, but I know a lot of these books and I've talked I've spoken to a couple of these books that have partnerships with the PGA Tour. They're a little bit worried about offering live lines. Is DraftKings going to release a, a DFS contest for for live? I don't know. I think that changes the conversation. So TBD on that, John, the huge gap between money and infrastructure in this startup league. I was kind of talking with Andy Lack about this a little bit earlier. There is no goal to be profitable in live golf. It's impossible. They will never be profitable in golf. They've already spent hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars, and they've had one event. They will never be profitable in golf. However, you don't have to be. Because you're the Saudi government. And if you bring uh, a CEO of some major multinational corporation to a pro-am and he gets to play with Phil Mickelson, you end up getting a $3 billion contract from that, you just made money. So you will never be profitable. It It is a bizarre game we're playing. The PGA Tour has to be profitable and has to have a reasonable business model for golf. This league does not. I'm curious uh, Seth says, I'm curious what the masters will say in regards to live. They're the big player that hasn't released any statement yet and we probably won't hear anything at least until the beginning of next year. for sure, I don't think they're gonna say anything quite honestly I think they I think the smart thing to do is wait. time is in favor of Augusta National right now ten months away, you don't have to make any decisions for at least six and a lot of these guys outside of your past champions, which you can continue to invite back because that's what it's been forever, are going to lose their way out. So I don't think you're going to have an issue with that. If you were an odds maker, this is pretty good. Austin says, if you were an odds maker setting the line for how many months or years that live is going to last, what is a fair number and what's your wager? Uh, So the fact that they signed Dustin Johnson for four years makes me think that's kind of the line here. And a lot of it will be determined on what other returns they get out of this. If this does not infiltrate a larger global media uh, in a positive way, if it does not return a lot of other those those, uh, secondary or tertiary returns from other CEOs or deals or contracts, uh, I could see four years being the line. I would bet, and this is tough because it also kind of depends who they get. If they got Hideki, I think it could be a longer-term play because I think that would open up a lot of different things. If they only ever get these old retired guys, four years might be a good line. Also, the thing with MBS, Muhammad bin Salman, I've spoken with people who have been around him and understand him way better than I ever will, obviously. He's like a 12-year-old with billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Like if he ever just gets bored and wants to go do something else, this is over, right? There, There is also, in the same sense that there is no business plan, there's also no exit strategy. He could just be like, ah, 22 events, that was fun. I got to travel around. I got to meet Phil. Let's go do something else. Let's go do a different sport. Let's go film the movies and television shows and whatever. So um, it's kind of interesting. Richie says, do you know what would happen if a player resigned from the live tour and wants to come back to the PGA tour? Um, If live ceases to exist, I believe that the PGA tour would welcome all of these guys back with open arms. Honestly, that's honestly what I think. Maybe, and then maybe disclose like, hey, you're, you're now back, but you have a six month suspension, something like that. I, I just think that the PGA tour in the same way, they don't have leverage for exit. They don't have leverage for entrance. I I think that they would welcome a lot of these guys back with open arms. Um, I imagine that if they, in the current state, if Liv Liv continued to exist and they resigned and they wanted to come back, they might have to qualify again, right? Now, someone like Phil, who I don't know if he resigned or not, but he's got lifetime membership, that gets a little bit trickier. I, I generally think they could find a way to get back in. What do you think in retrospect the tour could have done to stop or prevent this, ask Nick? This is a better, this is a great question. We knew this was coming for 18 months and really all the PGA Tour did was add a couple of million bucks to, to, to a couple of purses and create the PIP program. I think we were ahead, you know, there were, even before Live Golf existed, there were plenty of rumblings that the top players who do all the marketing, who, who, who pull in all the eyeballs, needed more. And whether that was, I, I thought we were headed towards guaranteed, Payments anyway, appearance fees. I thought we were headed towards something like that. They could have instituted this a long time ago. They could have instituted, um, I don't want to say a, a player's union, but like if your, your PGA tour card entitles you to a million dollars and everything else and limit the number of tour cards. And if you miss a cut, we're still going to give you a $10,000. Like I just thought there could have been other ways to to handle this. You could have listened to your players, your top players a little bit better here. Um, and been prepared for this a, a long time ago. What do you think of Live Golf in, in the in the Wall Street Journal? I thought it was the New York Times. Um, I'm pretty sure it's the New York Times. I don't know who they're trying to like. Are they trying to appeal to to the younger audience that whips out the New York Times every morning? Find that pretty hard to believe. I just think they're gonna try to normalize all of this. Um, what does the OWGR do? Likely again, nothing. Everyone is kind of incentivized to do nothing. The OWGR doesn't have to let anybody in. They don't have to keep anybody out. They can just do nothing. What does the DP World Tour do? I think they will be sold to either Live Golf or the PGA Tour. That is what I think is going to happen. What one player would completely devastate the PGA Tour if they left? Uh, Rory, but realistically, Morikawa, Victor. Morikawa would be pretty devastating, an American young American multi-major champion would would be pretty devastating. Is Faldo going to live? If yes, is that a big deal? I don't believe he is. And if he is, no, it is not a big deal. Should the PGA Tour offer the Live Defectors an open invitation to return home? At present, it seems that those have only been vilified. Okay. The other option that the PGA Tour could have done is coexist. Right? So they went the opposite end. They went to the direction of you're banned or like you're never going to play golf here again. The other option could have been we coexist and you're allowed to play on the PGA tour and eight times a year, you're going to go be able to compete for a lot of money. I don't know if that was the right answer, um, but you could have, you could have found a way to coexist. You could have said, Hey, here are the, here are the weeks we want you to go up against here. are The weeks we don't want you to go up against. There might've been a, an opportunity to, to coexist. As new live players join, which live players get displaced? This is kind of interesting too. They haven't disclosed all of the contracts. They, assume, you assume guys like, I mean, I guess Chase might be safe because his brother's there, but like those guys that are amateurs or they have golf world golf rankings outside of 600, uh, I hope you're getting paid now because if they, they're going to fill your spot Right? That's the hopes. The hopes is you don't have to compete in this. The hopes for the for live is they're getting rid of you. And maybe they honor your two years. I, I don't know, but that's it's a great question. The guys at the bottom of that of that player pool should be considerably worried. Uh this one just says, do we deserve Rory McElroy? No. We don't. It's kind of rare in life that the most successful people are also looking out for everybody else's interests. So think about billionaires, think about uh, professional athletes, whatever it is. Rory McIlroy is like the most successful guy we've got. Uh, Obviously would benefit greatly from someone who wanted to give him like $300 million. Has not only played well, but has been has come out against us. Now, there's only one Rory, and there's only an opportunity for one Rory because he also got very lucky in all of this. You know, he came up prime as everybody was paying for the Tiger effect. He signed a massive deal with Nike. Nike exits equipment, so he gets to sign another massive deal with TaylorMade, plus every other thing that he's got going on. $300 million is probably something he's earned already in his career, if not a multiple of that. He's very lucky like he's lucky to be able to be in this position to allow us to not deserve him regarding OWGR points for live since there is no qualification for being on live other than a Greg Norman invite pretty interesting does this hurt their case for being awarded OWGR points yes from my understanding there's also two other things that are going to be an issue for them getting OWGR points number one is that they're 54 whole events um Generally speaking, OWGR would like these to be 72 events over four days instead of 54 over three. And the other thing that I could not find, okay, I heard this in the media center from people that I trust that would be in the note, but I could not find any documentation of this. I believe the OWGR will only admit tours that have an average player field of 70 golfers. Now, the PGA Tour gets away with the smaller events in the Tour Championship because on average, because they have a lot that are 144, 150, they can get away with that. I am trying to find out more information. So If anybody has any more information, let me know. Serious question. If the money was coming from an angelic source, would there be any less condemnation? I do wonder where the majority of people talking about the Saudi human right laws think that think about them at uh Saudi rights laws think about them at all other than when hit that the rest of that sentence doesn't make any sense that's that doesn't make sense but if the money were coming from from a more angelic source um yeah I think the I think the PGA tour would kind of have a harder time defending this right they wouldn't get the they wouldn't get the support of some media outlets and they wouldn't get support of some of the players who were able to write it off if you were yeah I think like the PGL which again if you ask some people like oh you know, stockbrokers from Europe aren't any better than the Saudis. Like, you'd have that argument too. But I do think it would be a lot harder for the PGA Tour to defend. What team are you on? Or are you going to appear neutral? That comes from a uh, an account called Live Golf Tracker. So I think we know what team they're on. I think I'm on Team Golf. I'd prefer to be on Team PGA. I, I don't think Live Golf is uh, a good for the game. Right. Anytime you have a situation where uh the game gets weaker and you've got your stars spread out, I think is worse for the game. It'll make the major championships more important because those would be the four times a year that these guys come back. But I am I don't think I've necessarily even appeared neutral. I think I certainly lean PGA tour, obviously. Uh I would I would love it if the PGA tour massively reformed to look a lot like F one and they've got their flaws as well, but I don't think I've appeared neutral. It's a it's obviously a, a a complex situation in which we're not gonna hear the end of it, right? And it's it's going to be a while. Um. Oh. There, oh. Yes, I do remember there was a question. I didn't see it there, but there was a question about should the PGA Tour make uh, make a fifth major? Yeah, Kevin Van Volkengberg of uh, I think he's with ESPN now wrote something about this a couple of weeks ago. The PGA Tour should just make the players a major championship. What's stopping them? the who decides what the majors are is completely arbitrary. Just call it a major and say, yeah, this is there's now five majors, and just tell everybody to start talking about it. It'll work there There is no definition of a major championship. It's got one of the biggest purses in golf history. Call it a major. everyone everyone would eventually get on board with it. and now you control a major. And when you control a major, things are a little bit different. but um, they probably should have done that a while ago because now they 're realizing they don 't have much leverage in this situation, although I do think there are a lot of guys who, if you gave them sixty million dollars or forty million or eighty million or a hundred or two hundred or whatever that number is, and said yeah you 're never you 're also never going to be able to play in a major championship again, they probably won 't care so there is there is a, a a percentage of of people like that every day matters at this point, I think we are getting into a situation where there's going to be more guys that join the Portland field. I think there's going to be more announcements after the Open Championship. I think there's going to be more announcements after the Tour Championship. Then I think it'll die down a little bit. I think those are kind of the most natural spots. And for those who are willing and ready to go, that is when when they will go. And that makes the most sense. So something that is going to continue to dominate our sport, whether you like it or not, but we'll continue to cover it and see which direction everything goes I think that'll do it. You can find me on Twitter. Probably tell me how wrong I am. That's fine. It's always welcome. At Rick Run Good. You can leave a comment. Always good to hear from those. But for now, I'll say that this has been a brand new episode of 300 Yards to Unknown. And we'll catch you next time.